from PRX. Studio 360. Long live cowboys. Long live cowboys. America is a cowboy nation. We love our guns. We love the wide open spaces and the idea of the lone rugged hero. Even our politicians sound like cowboys before they become leaders. Indian casualties were heavy, ours were light. And besides, I had a strong feeling I'd be riding into a trap. And after. We will smoke them out of their holes, we will get them running, and we'll bring them to justice. The Wild West is a fundamental part of the story of how we built this nation. Of course, the real history wasn't just romantic. It was complicated and sometimes grim. So where did this mythology come from? Sure, there was John Wayne and a gazillion westerns, but who came before that? Where did it all start? Who's got the show that gets the most applause? 500 Indians and 50 squaws, 10 featured acts, and there's a special feature still. Buffalo Bill Cody. If you know anything about him, good chance it's from the musical Annie Get Your Gun. But Annie Oakley was only one character in Buffalo Bill's parade of cowboys, Indians, soldiers, and settlers. They all made up Buffalo Bill's Wild West, a live entertainment spectacle that traveled the world for three decades. In this hour of our series on American icons, we're going to look at how Buffalo Bill's Wild West changed the way we Americans understand our history and our destiny. But to fully understand the show, we have to start with the man behind it. How did William F. Cody become Buffalo Bill? So here we are on the western edge of town, and we see the beginnings of a of, of the theme of the town, Old Trail Town, the Old West as it really was. I figured the best place to learn about William Cody was Cody, Wyoming, the town he founded in 1896 after he made his fortune in show business. Cowboy Village. Cody wasn't much of a family man. He traveled with his Wild West show for 30 years. But he did name the oldest building in town after his youngest daughter, the Irma Hotel. most common question is where the bullet holes are in the bar. Are there bullet holes in the bar? Yes, there's um, one or two by the buffalo head up there. People here are friendly. A handshake is a bond. Yeah. I mean, it's like the Old West. It really yeah. is. And have you always worn a, worn a cowboy hat? Yes, sir. I have most all my life, except for when I was in bed. There's no place like Cody. Mark Paul runs the local gun shop. Firearms laws are very, very minor and non-existent in many cases. It's great. Is that your son uh, sweeping up outdoors? That's Donnie. You're Donnie? Do you know who Buffalo Bill was? Yeah. What do you think about Buffalo Bill? He was a great man. A great man? Maybe. William F. Cody began his career as an Army scout in the 1870s, tracking Indian tribes on the run from the U.S. Cavalry. He was a skilled rider and an expert buffalo hunter, hence the nickname. Eventually, he was sought out by rich people looking for thrills out on the frontier. He took them out on buffalo hunts. And this robe of buffalo and other furs was given to Cody by the Grand Duke to thank him for that experience. John Rum curates the Buffalo Bill Historical Center in Cody. He's showing me a robe of buffalo furs that was given to Cody by the Grand Duke of Russia. Cody sold himself as a rugged frontiersman, but he really wanted to be a star. 
that, that hunt was widely covered in all the papers. So he was a young man at the same, 25, 26 years That's old. right. In 1872, he would have been about 25, 26. So this was his big break. That was his big break. Before long, dime novels and newspaper articles were featuring Buffalo Bill, or at least an enhanced fictional version of him. That same year, Cody was invited to perform in a stage show in Chicago. Who did he play? Himself. And the show was such a hit, it moved to New York. Louis Warren is the author of Buffalo Bill's America. He says that Cody was our first modern American celebrity. And Cody's one of the people who figures out earliest uh, in, in this period, I think, that you could live your whole life as an ongoing drama for a large audience. And, or you could at least make it look like that's what you were doing. And that was a way to make a living out of living, in a sense. In the summer of 1876, when Cody was 30, his real life and his performance art collided. He was scouting with the 5th Cavalry out of Fort Robinson in western Nebraska when he came across a Cheyenne warrior called Yellowhair. Yellowhair and Cody probably took shots at each other and might have shot the horses out from under each other, but they did get into a hand-to-hand fight. Historian Judy Winchester lives in the town of Cody. Whether or not there was any... um, any dialogue of, oh, Pahaska, I know you, you know, and then come and get me, or whatever they were saying, that there was a hand-to-hand fight and that in the end, Cody did take a man's scalp in this. And was he, is it true that he he was uh, dressed in the theatrical Buffalo Bill outfit? Yeah, he was dressed in uh, 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 a black velvet mariachi-style suit. On the plains in, in July. Can you imagine this? He must have been hot and uncomfortable, but he was going to do it because then he could go back to the stage and say, in this costume, I performed these deeds. Whether or not he had planned on killing somebody, you know, specific like that, I don't believe. When Cody got back to New York City, he claimed this unfortunate random guy he'd come across was actually an Indian chief one of the Indians who just killed General Custer and all his soldiers at the Battle of Little Bighorn. This real human scalp and the phony story behind it became a sensational new prop in Cody's stage show. Cody's entertainment plays on uh, Americans' longing for real things, to know that they they are in touch with something that is authentic and not just a copy. Um, but it also, it, throughout his entertainment, he was always surrounding himself with lots of things that were inauthentic. And he told many stories that were mostly, or in some, some cases, completely fabricated. And then he gets this idea of combining the rodeo with what he used to do as a stage performer. Richard Slotkin is the author of the book Gunfighter Nation. And uh, that's, the, that's the origin of the Wild West show formula. On May 19, 1883, at the age of 43, Cody put on the first Wild West show in Omaha, Nebraska, my hometown. Most Americans had only read or heard about the West, the ranchers, the pioneers, the Indians. Cody was bringing the West to them, while the Indian Wars were still being fought. It was a huge operation. The show took three trains to move all of the staff, the cast, the animals, the props. The Wild West show had its own pastry chef. It had its own blacksmiths. It had its own wheelwright. 
It's had its own core of electrical engineers. So that there would be, during its peak years, between seven and 1,200 people traveling with the Wild West show. From the moment the Wild West show debuted, audiences flocked to it, hundreds, thousands at a time, from immigrant workers to upper-class ladies. You'd probably show up early, um, because if you showed up early at the show, you got to walk through the Wild West village that was there, and particularly the Indian encampment, where you would actually meet genuine Indians who were in the show. And then you could go sit in the stands. The grandstand takes the form of a horseshoe. Historian Bob Rydell. And on one end of it is an enormous tableau painting that depicts mountains, it depicts um, recognizable western scenes. Well, the first thing that you would be struck by is the music. And Cody had a cowboy band. It began with the Star Spangled Banner, typically. The, the show used the Star Spangled Banner long before uh, it became the national anthem. You would have almost like an, uh, an introductory bit where everybody would ride around the arena. And then there would be a whole series of, of acts of skill and competition. Plus also feats of marksmanship. Since Cody was a noted marksman with several different kinds of weapons, he would give a display of uh, shooting glass balls thrown into the air while riding by on horseback. The Wild West, he says, it's not a show. It's not a, a, simply a stage performance. It's a reenactment of American history. He'll begin with, let's say, the landing of the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock. Or he'll restage uh, John Smith and Pocahontas. But what he does then is he cuts from that primal moment to the Wild West. The high point of the show is the Deadwood stage and this chase around the arena. The end of the show, you know civilization is safe through the good graces of Buffalo Bill and the Western Cowboys. Buffalo Bill's Wild West will come to your town. Buffalo Bill's Wild West will come to your city, and you will visually see this mythic story played out with, as, as Cody says, the original performers. He gets Sitting Bull to perform in his show. He gets Geronimo to perform in his show. And, and his show went not only to in the United States, but the show spent almost 10 years touring Europe and went as far east as what is today the Ukraine. Buffalo Bill was the most famous American in the world. Authentic or not, Buffalo Bill's Wild West became a new creation myth for America. Coming up, we meet Old West reenactors who are trying to keep Cody's memory alive in the 21st century. Well, I feel like, like the Old West is an endangered species now. And later on, Sioux Chief Sitting Bull, alive and well and living in Paris. They expect me to be a chief, so I have to present myself respectable, uh, you know, stoic or whatever they're looking for. I give them all that. I'm Kurt Anderson, and you're listening to American Icons, Buffalo Bill's Wild West. Studio 360. 
today on American Icons, we're looking at the legacy of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, the first global entertainment spectacle that toured the world for more than 30 years, starting in the 1880s. In Buffalo Bill Cody's time, actual cowboys were nothing like clean-cut rodeo stars or country singers or the Lone Ranger. They were more like Hell's Angels of the Great Plains on horseback. They were a rough bunch, and they were day laborers. You know, they were doing hard work, and they were living hard, and they were, you know, single guys for the most part and and living that life. Historian Judy Winchester says it was Buffalo Bill who rebranded the cowboy as respectable, inventing that yes-ma'am code of honor. He helped transform cowboys into heroes of a certain kind, you know, a good working man hero. Cowboys didn't wear Stetson hats until Cody made them popular. Real cowboys were often black or Mexican. Cody's cowboys were overwhelmingly white. Real cowboys were simple ranch hands. Cody's cowboys were super marksmen, trick riders, ropers, and they had really good hygiene. The cowboys in the Wild West, when they weren't dirty from the arena, when they went around town, they were perfectly clean. They were straight-laced. Some people are still trying to live up to Buffalo Bill's image of the Western hero. Out in Denver, Colorado Public Radio's Megan Verlee met up with some of them. I'm in the backyard of R.D. Melfi's house near Denver. R.D. has Buffalo Bill Cody's pointed blonde beard, his shoulder-length hair, and his fondness for buckskins. During the week, he's a vice president at Wells Fargo. But on the weekends, he cleans up on the reenactment circuit. I have been actually studying and portraying Buffalo Bill since I was a little boy, maybe seven or eight years old. R.D.'s wife performs alongside him. I'm Barbara Melfi, and I have been portraying Annie Oakley for 15 years now, and love every minute of it. Annie Oakley was the biggest star that came out of the Wild West show, an unbelievably good sharpshooter who managed to be rugged and ladylike. Barb is able to reenact Oakley's tricks with darn good accuracy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this shot is called the Annie Oakley. And he is sighting in using a mirror with the uh, rifle over her shoulder. So she's sighting into the target with that mirror. Woo! Nice shot, Annie! It's an early winter evening. At 8,000 feet, the temperature drops fast when the sun goes down. We tramp back to the Melfi's house. Inside, it's a shrine to the Old West. And that's before you get to the room with all the reenactment gear. This is his pride and joy. This is an exact replica. It was copied bead for bead. What Barb's pulled out here is her husband's magnificent beaded buckskin jacket. If you're picturing Buffalo Bill right now, this is probably what he's got on. The coat is uh, Buffalo Bill's vaquero jacket. He wore that uh, quite a bit. There are quite a few photographs of him in this coat. The Melfies both grew up crazy about cowboys at a time when pop culture agreed with them. Now their nostalgias become a kind of activism. It's almost like an environmentalist who, who will fight for a little bitty fish or a, or a spotted owl or whatever. Well, I feel like, like the Old West is an endangered species now. And we fight against that constantly, trying to make people understand that that still has to live along with Starbucks coffee and Birkenstock sandals and um, all the other foo-fra that goes along with uh, whatever we call that culture. is <laughs> going to be able to keep up that fight for a very long time. Most of your famous characters like Custer or 
Hickok. They died young. And when you start aging and get a little too old, you can't really do some of those characters. But with Cody, I mean, I can do Cody till I'm 80 if, I, if I'm able. And, uh, you know, hopefully people will still want to see Cody at 80. One of the Melfi's main gigs is playing Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley in the Great American Wild West show. It's a stadium-sized attraction that's part of Denver's annual stock show and rodeo. The man behind this new Old West spectacular is Don Ensley, a retired rodeo announcer. We do have a lot of elements that, that Buffalo Bill had in his shows. We have the Indian dancers, and we have the uh, Longhorn cattle. We have the stagecoach robbery that he had, the stagecoach hold up. Ensley's trying to bring a sense of theater back to the rodeo scene, which he thinks has become too much of a sport. Look at this. His teenage stunt performers ride horses standing on top of the saddles, slinging themselves far off to one side or the other. These may be cowboy skills, but they're pretty far from anything you'd need on a ranch. Then again, a lot of the audience members wearing cowboy hats and boots have no experience working on a ranch either. Don Ensley doesn't see a contradiction. A cowboy, even even to be more generic, I guess, a Western way about you, it's not where you, I think, where you come from or where you live it's it's a state of mind it's it's in your mind it's if, if you're from long island and you want to be a cowboy well you can be a cowboy that that geographical location that you're born in or live in can't keep you from being a cowboy the people who ended up in in the west as cowboys and like buffalo bill they didn't come from the west a lot of them moved to the west and became what they became If we leave Ensley's Wild West show and make our way under the six thundering lanes of the I-70, we arrive at the Rodeo Coliseum. Don Ensley's Wild West show may be a novelty act, but the modern rodeo is just as mainstream as NASCAR. Buffalo Bill's imprint can be found here, too. Clint Cannon coming off what could be considered one of the most successful seasons any single cowboy has ever had. Here we go! Cannon is a world champion bareback rider. He used to play football in college until he and his brother started practicing rodeo stunts they saw on TV. We're from the country, but we didn't know how to be a real, legit cowboy. Dress the part, act the part, be real about it. He's climbing up on bulls and horses, risking life and limb, trying to make a career of it. But he can't be a real cowboy until his clothes are right? I love westerns. I've got tons of them. And, you know, I... It's when I'm not feeling like a cowboy sometimes, because I live close to the city and I live right outside of Houston, and sometimes I'm like, oh, man, I just don't feel like a cowboy today. I'll put an old Western and watch it, and it makes me feel like a cowboy. You know, I'll put on some old boots and go out and ride my horse just, just because I watch an old Western. Being a cowboy isn't about herding cows anymore. It's about living up to an icon. The gold in the buckle, he'll win the next Thanks to Megan Verlee for that story. When I was growing up, we pretty much idolized cowboys. 
They were the good guys. Indians were the enemy. It was Buffalo Bill Cody who linked cowboys and Indians together in the public imagination. In the real West, they had very little to do with each other. But in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, cowboys would always save the day when the Indians attacked a stagecoach or a settler's cabin. Say, Buffalo Bill, what are Indian kids like? What do they do? Do they have to go to school? Well, sure, they go to school, but not inside like you. What do they learn? Arithmetic? No, they learn to ride and fish and hunt and swim. Tell us about it, Buffalo Bill. Well, it's, it's kind of hard to tell about them, but... Uh... If you kids could see 300 of them on galloping ponies with their feathers flying, it's something you'd never forget. That was Joel McRae as Buffalo Bill in an old biopic. Back in the 1870s, America was still fighting and winning the Indian Wars. But a lot of non-Native Americans at the time saw them more or less the way we do now. Unfortunate, tragic, inevitable. Bill Cody knew that ambivalence wouldn't sell. He changed the narrative from a war of ethnic cleansing into exciting, heroic fun for the whole family. His Indians were clearly the bad guys. But in fact, weirdly, at a time when Native Americans were being herded onto reservations wholesale, performing in Cody's show was a way out for a few of them, a lucky break. If you went into the Wild West show, um, you typically got, as an Indian performer, a wage of $25 a month. You also had all your travel expenses paid. Uh, you got food and lodging while you were on the road, and you got to see the world. Louis Warren says the Native Americans working for the Wild West show were able to preserve their culture, ironically, by reenacting their defeat. Remember, this is a time when Indian culture is under relentless attack um, by the U.S. government. Uh, it's illegal to do dances. Uh, to do most dances on the reservations. Indian religious ceremonies are banned. The children are taken off to boarding schools where they're not allowed to speak their language. They're forced to speak English. One of the Indian performers was a girl named Rose Nelson. Rose had been born on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1880. She joined Buffalo Bill's brand-new show at the age of four. Decades later, she told her granddaughter, Mary Rose Morris, about her days with the show. You know, the Indians would attack the settlers or the, the wagon train. Or, In fact, her father played the role of uh, the Sutter, and his cabin was attacked by the Indians, most of whom were his relatives through his wife, but it, they understood theater. Rose knew the show's narrative was bogus, especially the reenactment of the battles of the Indian Wars. But this was the only venue she and her people had to do tribal singing and dancing full bore, not just to entertain white audiences, but for themselves. You know, they had all those dime novels and things, the Buffalo Bill dime novels. And we were not always portrayed accurately. I think she enjoyed having people treat her as a peer and letting them know she felt she was a peer, if not more. It didn't hurt that Rose became a child star. Cody renamed her Princess Blue Water, and she got to meet President Chester Allen Arthur and Queen Victoria. These stories grew into family legend. Yes, she was presented to the Queen, and she was told uh, prior to being presented to her that she would have to curtsy. And she said she wouldn't. She said, our people don't bow to anybody. There is another story about her uh, smacking the Prince of Wales. They say he was 
making fun of the elders and laughed at them. So she smacked him one. Even more surreal, Rose claimed that her babysitter had been Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley would let her sometimes have a sleepover at her tent. If she wasn't behaving, Annie Oakley didn't feel badly about having to spank her. How do you do? I'm Kurt Anderson. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Come in. Thank you. Arthur Amiot is a professional artist who lives in the town of Custer, South Dakota, out in the Black Hills. I like to say this is a photograph of a typical Lakota family at the turn of the century. There's a mother, a father, a child, a grandmother, a grandfather, and an anthropologist. (laughs) (laughs) Arthur makes witty collages about Native Americans traveling in Europe with the Wild West show, including his ancestor. Arthur's own great-grandfather, Standing Bear, was one of Buffalo Bill's Indian performers. Standing Bear had never been off the plains or seen a city until Cody hired him. For some of them, even staying in hotels was a frightful experience, you know, being enclosed in these buildings on the third or fourth or fifth or sixth floor with people underneath you, you're not trusting that that building wasn't going to fall down. (laughs) Then they would talk about uh, seeing odd things like, I mean, uh, you know, they were talking about the women wearing, uh, well, they didn't know they were bustles. You know, those big things that they wore in the back under their dress. They thought they were deformed. (laughs) (laughs) Standing Bear's life was like some fish-out-of-water comedy, but it was about to become a romantic drama. In Vienna, at the end of the 19th century, Standing Bear met Louise, Arthur Amiot's great-grandmother. While in Vienna, Austria, he was injured and had to stay behind. And we actually have the document where... uh, his ticket was left at the American consulate. By was he injured as part of the show? or just? Yes, yes. No, he was injured during the show. And he had to stay behind. And uh, he was taken into the home of the surgeon and, the, and his nurse. And uh, the nurse was Louise Reinick. So he lived with them, some say, for almost two years. So she apparently had, was adept at learning languages. <laughs> so she began learning Lakota. Uh, from him while he lived in their home. And it was at that time that uh, uh, they began their liaison. However, he had a, uh, a prior wife who remained behind. She traveled with, um, was with the Bigfoot band that got massacred at Wounded Knee. And once he heard the news that his first wife and, and baby daughter had been murdered at Wounded Knee, that's when he decided then that he would ask Louise to be his wife then. What a tale. <laughs> and and ha- was it h- highly uncommon for these Indians traveling in Europe with Buffalo Bill's show to have relationships with Europeans? Absolutely. Oh. In fact, it was, uh, it was frowned upon by, by uh, white society in particular. Do you think it's fair to say that in some measure that w- what the Wild West show was doing... Di- that one of its maybe unintended effects was to sort of help preserve traditional Indian culture? There are those who would say that, and then there are those who would say that these were means of perverting these traditional activities also by reenacting them and doing them for a non-Indian audience 
uh, that it was um, making them more and more into... Uh, minstrel versions of them. Yeah, right? that, there you go. That's good. Minstrel versions <laughs> uh, of the original, huh? Yeah. Well, it can be, both can be true, I suppose, right? Well, yes. Preservation and perversion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, you look at the modern powwow, and uh, you see some of the outfits that the people are wearing. <laughs> I mean, gold lame. <laughs> Arthur Amiot is an artist and teacher in South Dakota, and you can see some of his artwork at studio360.org slash American Icons. Mesdames et messieurs, bonsoir! Buffalo Bill's Wild West was a blockbuster in Europe, spending maybe a third of its time there. And in France today, something like it is still playing. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Buffalo Bill's Wild West. Uh, If you go to Parc Disneyland outside Paris, you can watch a live 90-minute Wild West show where they serve smoked ribs and chili. Despite everything, despite the massacres and all that, it makes you want to go back and live the life of an Indian or a cowboy to have um, a big adventure. Yes. Despite the massacres, that is a large caveat. But nothing about the Wild West show is easy. Hello, my name is Kevin Dust, and I play the role of uh, Principal Sitting Bull. Kevin Dust grew up on a reservation in Montana. Like his ancestors, Kevin found a new sense of freedom working in Europe. I was just going to the airport, and I had one of my aunties, who's still upset with me this day. I said, she says, well, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going home, back to France. And she was upset at me, and I wouldn't blame her. But again, this is my second home. I quite like it here. The character Kevin plays, Sitting Bull, was the most feared and admired chief during the Indian Wars. And Sitting Bull actually appeared in Buffalo Bill's original Wild West show, although only for a few months. Somebody has been playing Sitting Bull in the Paris Disneyland show for more than 20 years. Greetings to you and your tribe. Tatanka Yotanka, Medicine Chief Sitting Bull. Tatanka Wichash. Tonka, wake up! They expect me to be a chief, so I have to present myself respectable, uh, you know, stoic or whatever they're looking for. I give him all that. He's been a chief of our tribe when he was only 27 years old. Here I am, 47 myself, thinking, well, it's about time. You know what they say about truth being stranger than fiction? That is a perfect description of the relationship between Buffalo Bill and Sitting Bull in real life. They became good friends even as they were playing enemies on stage. That makes perfect sense if you look at Buffalo Bill's behavior before Sitting Bull and after Sitting Bull. Historian Judy Winchester. When you look at things he says later on, I think that Cody the man was starting to feel some regret at the way the Native Americans in in general were being treated, but also in his part in this. After performing in the Wild West show, 59-year-old Sitting Bull returned to the Standing Rock Reservation in South Dakota. On December 15, 1890, he was arrested for inciting insurrection, a charge that most historians say was spurious. The feds called on Buffalo Bill to intervene. And Buffalo Bill 
with all honesty, really meant to go and, and give a hand, but he got stopped. And McLaughlin, the agent, was doing everything he could to throw objects in the path of Buffalo Bill, and he sadly threw some things that Buffalo Bill was weak to, including booze. Before Buffalo Bill could get to Sitting Bull, it was all over. Sitting Bull had been killed in a gun battle with police. His death led to the horrific massacre two weeks later at the Battle of Wounded Knee, the last great battle of the Indian Wars. In the Wild West show, Cody used to reenact the defeat and deaths of General Custer and his men at the Battle of Little Bighorn. At the end of the scene, Cody would ride into the arena on horseback, carrying a banner that read, Too Late, as if he could have saved the hero Custer from Sitting Bull's men if he had only arrived in time. In real life, it was Sitting Bull he had actually tried to save. And for that, he really was too late. He's a complex figure. He's in some ways better than the stories he tells. Coming up, Cody sets the stage for the Wild West show to continue after he's gone in the form of the Hollywood Western. You mean the Apaches? There's been no sign of them. You don't see any signs of them. They strike like rattlesnakes. I'm Kurt Anderson, and you're listening to Studio 360's American Icons from PRI and WNYC. I'm Kurt Anderson. In this episode of American Icons, we are looking at Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Hello. On the edge of Cody, Wyoming, there's a ghost town. It's on the site of the original settlement of Cody from the 1890s. Ray Hammond is the caretaker. He's on a respirator. Well, I'm from Wyoming, born and raised. Yeah? I'm retired off of a ranch, and that's all I ever did do, so that's what I do now. What did you raise? Cows. I grew up in Nebraska. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, that's a good state. This ghost town has a ramshackle saloon and rickety raised wooden sidewalks. Most of the buildings are old, but not original to Cody. They're imported from other ghost towns around the West. I was transported back to my childhood when my parents used to take us to these kinds of places in Wyoming and South Dakota. Even my producer started to look strange. What are you doing back there, ma'am? Why are you wearing pants? It's a setting familiar to all of us. It looks like the set of almost any movie western of the past century. And those can all be traced back to Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. By 1914, interest in the Wild West show had started to peter out. An exciting new medium had emerged, the motion picture, and Cody decided to conquer it. He made one of the first Western movies ever, a silent called The Indian Wars. It was a flop. Cody didn't understand the language of film, the close-ups and cross-cutting. But Richard Slotkin, author of the book Gunfighter Nation, says that Cody still had a big influence on the first generation of movie makers. One of the reasons why Westerns are so popular with filmmakers right at the beginning is that Uh, Here with Westerns, you've got this huge body of ready-made stories and ready-made heroes. So they're really taking their story material from either the Wild West show 
or they're taking it from dime novels, often Buffalo Bill dime novels. We can see Cody's stamp all the way through to the Hollywood westerns of John Wayne and Gary Cooper. His Wild West show's central showpiece, The White Settler's Cabin Under Attack by Indians, became an iconic scene in John Ford's 1956 film, The Searchers. Remember where your hideout was, Grandma? Where she's buried? Oh, if you won't make a sound to come back no matter what you hear. Promise. I promise. For decades, westerns were about the most bankable movie genre going. When I was a little kid in the early 60s, no less than a quarter of the primetime shows were westerns. Americans didn't get tired of heroic cowboys fighting hostile Indians until the late 1960s. Richard Slotkin attributes this change of heart in the pop culture to a real-world event, the Vietnam War. The western, in a sense, provides a rationale for the Vietnam War. There's a a quotation which I like to use from uh, General Maxwell Taylor who said, to trying to explain what we're doing in Vietnam, the settlers can't plant corn unless you move the Indians away from the fort. When the war goes sour, when the, the public turns against the war, nobody wants the Western either because the Western is so closely associated with it. You can see the Western movie change during the late 60s and 70s. The good guys are no longer good. They're misunderstood outlaws or persecuted Indians. Classic heroes like General Custer were portrayed strictly as buffoons or worse. In Robert Altman's 1976 film Buffalo Bill and the Indians, Paul Newman portrayed Buffalo Bill as an insecure, egotistical, dim-witted drunk. What did Bull ever do for you? You wanted to show the truth to the people. Why can't you accept that just once? Because I got a better sense of history than that. Besides, I say what goes on in this show. Some goddamn engine runtin' is half-assed, half-breed. I'm sorry. Got any whiskey around here? Anyway, you want this chair? As our Western myth was revised, a woman named Carol Strabeel was watching firsthand. In the 1960s, Carol's father, an Italian immigrant, bought a rundown amusement park in New Jersey called Wild West City. So with his six children and his wife, they went into the business of operating the amusement park because he really didn't have the money to just kind of sit on the land until at some point it would become valuable. He really, he didn't care much about the West or the mythology of the West. I think he was very much in it for the money. Wild West City was like a stationary mini version of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show with daily shootouts and stagecoaches. It sounds like a fun way to spend your childhood. Carol hated it. I knew that this was a worldview and a place that hated people of color, hated women, and it hated animals, largely in that order. And I knew that that wasn't a place for me. The demographic was changing across the 1960s. You know, Wawa City became this kind of space where people felt like they didn't have to deal with any of that stuff, right? They didn't have to deal with any of that social change with the hippies or anything else. Cowboys were interesting because you would have cowboys who were college students who would come and just do it for a lark, and often they would be there for like one or two years. On weekends, you had this whole kind of cadre of cowboys who had real jobs but loved to come and dress up on weekends and play cowboy for free. They didn't get paid. And they would just come every weekend, forever. Some of them for 10 years, some of them for 20 years. Sometimes I wouldn't even know their names. You wouldn't know their names. You'd just call them Sarge or 
the sheriff. Um, and the sheriff was a guy who was in his 70s. He must have come around for a long time and just, you know, walked around Wawa City and shook kids' hands and, you know, wore chaps and a vest and a um, sheriff's badge. You know, I think the nature of the business attracted those kinds of people, people who were drawn to, you know, a kind of founding bullshit story that made their own bullshit lives feel more livable. Carol Stabile is a professor at the University of Oregon, and she's working on a memoir about Wild West City. From the 1970s on, westerns disappeared from primetime television. They were relegated to midday reruns and late-night movies. Now they're back. HBO has a huge hit with the series Westworld about an Old West-themed amusement park set in the future. But before Westworld, there was another HBO drama that tried to depict the real West in its rawest form. Self-deceiving cocksucker I am. I thought when America took us in, Bullock could prove a fucking resource. Look at him, striding out like some randy maniac bishop. Sheriff! About his duties to the camp. Be where I can find you. I ain't going no place. The first wave of reaction to Deadwood had to do with people saying... This is completely inauthentic because they didn't talk that way in the West right. when all they really meant was this isn't like the Western movies that I used to see. David Milch created the brilliant HBO drama Deadwood. He was obsessed with authenticity. He wanted to show cowboys as they really were before Cody cleaned them up. I asked Milch why the West was so alluring in life and in fiction. Well, it caters to the kind of fantasy idea, you know, the possibility of the fresh start. Uh, Part of the appeal of fantasizing about the fresh start is rationalizing the fact that you're not going to try for it. Yeah, which which then leads me to my other, one of my other thoughts is that the biker, the modern biker, the Hell's Angel, are kind of Old West reenactors. Yeah, you know, there's a, a pretty good line at the end of The Great Gatsby, which if memory serves was not a biker film but the, I think the <laughs> or a biker the last, novel yeah uh, the last line in the novel I think is so we beat on boats against the current borne back ceaselessly into the past this, I, I think that the the yearning for a sort of simpler more primitive uh, incarnation of the way we are living it has exactly that kind of doubleness to it as you think about the various figures of the West, it sounds like Buffalo Bill isn't one of your favorites. No, uh, he isn't. But that probably doesn't keep him awake nights. But why is that? It's, uh, because I think that he really wasn't a figure of the Wild West. You know, I, I think of him more in the context, you know, of uh, like Samuel Goldwyn. Well, because he spent only a few years being a scout. And the ratio, I guess, of years as an impresario and performer to the years actually being in the Wild West is pretty great for him not to be. Yeah, and I mean, that wasn't his fault. He just lived a long time. Right, but, and uh, was smart. But, and was smart and knew how to adapt. And I suppose it's of the essence of those who went west 
and didn't live long and didn't know how to adapt, that they more purely embodied the Western condition. You know, one version of a fallen man before he realized he fell. David Milch. Buffalo Bill's Wild West was sort of an American Garden of Eden, and the mythology we trace back to the Wild West show did not disappear. It's alive and well today, only in sci-fi drag. Take the biggest movie blockbuster of all time, James Cameron's Avatar. Tell them they're going to be here soon. You have to leave or you're going to die. It is totally a post-60s Western. The planet Pandora is a new frontier full of natural wonder and mysticism and adventure. The aliens are noble savages hunted down by settlers. And they fight a last stand against a crazy, vicious military commander. That they cannot take whatever they want. And that this, this is our land. As our moral compass has been recalibrated, so have the stories we tell ourselves about what it means to be an American. Even in Buffalo Bill's own lifetime, the Wild West show evolved. So we're here in Cody, Wyoming at the Cody Hotel, which is... When I stayed in Cody, Wyoming, my hotel had this incredible photograph of Buffalo Bill sitting with members of his company towards the end of their run in 1912. It's an unbelievably polyglot group of performers. You have... There were plenty of cowboys and Indians, but there were also Mexicans in sombreros and Cossacks, people from Southwest Asia in the Middle East, African women in African dresses, a, a New Orleans jazz band in bowler hats. But there's also this great-looking man, maybe like an Australian Aborigine. Yeah, I guess he's holding, he's holding a boomerang, so that's exactly what he is. This, this uh, later Wild West was no longer a simple place where good white guys kill bad Indians. The show had become a multicultural celebration called the Congress of the Rough Riders. There is a place in the story for lots of different people. Louis Warren. When Cody was, was performing... You know, in Brooklyn, there were, there were people who were celebrating Forefathers' Day in Brooklyn. And Forefathers' Day was a reenactment of Plymouth Rock. Well, if you weren't, you know, descended from those people, um, you didn't have a place in the American story. And the question becomes, you know, what, what is our story? Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was open to everybody, and it was a place you wanted to go. In the Wild West, it depicted you could simplify your life and find your purpose. Judy Winchester. It's partly man against things bigger than himself, whether it's nature or circumstance, you know. At the same time, it's a, it's a, a resonant idea that facing something as big as the nature you find out in the West will transform you into a better person all the way from your from your body to your soul. William F. Cody is buried on Lookout Mountain, west of Denver. His grave is a pile of quartz mortared together with brass plaques, the Rocky Mountains looming in the background. R.D. Melfi, the Wells Fargo executive who reenacts Cody's life, comes here often. It's really pretty up here. And they built these beautiful towers. <laughs> and that changed the whole look of the mountain. The broadcast and cell phone towers do spoil the pristine view a bit, but in a funny way, they're actually sort of fitting. 
Just as the frontier was closing 120 years ago, Buffalo Bill Cody sent out a new creation myth for America. At the same time, he became a new kind of founding father, a founder of the American entertainment empire that is still going strong today, still shamelessly mixing fact and fiction. An empire that has colonized our dreams. That's it for today's show. Thank you very much for listening. Today's episode was produced by Eric Malinsky and edited by Lital Molad. Thanks also to Julie Burstein. We first aired this hour in 2010. John Rum is now the executive director of Nemours Mansion and Gardens. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360. I've been doing some research. In real life, there is no algebra. Growing up, where Twin Peaks was filmed. There was definitely this sense of tragedy just sort of hanging over the town. How the original Twin Peaks spooked locals, built a cult following, and rewrote the rules of television. Next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.